sitting on a chair operating a video camera. Her feet do not even touch the ground. Her hair is braided in pigtails. Jasmine's is nine years old. On her video, first she interviews her mom, and then her mom interviews her. Do you know how much I love you? Yes. Do you know how proud I am of you? Yes. What do you want to be when you grow up? A medical professor. This is all taking place in a Texas prison. Jasmine's mom is in for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Jasmine's here with her Girl Scout troop. Everybody in the troop has a mom in prison. There are dozens of Girl Scout troops like this all across the country. A couple of filmmakers, Ellen Spiro and Karen Bernstein, put together a film about this troop called Troop 1500. And as part of it, they were there as the girls and their moms interviewed each other. How are you doing in school? Great. What do you want us to do when I come home? Go to the zoo. What's your favorite color? Blue. I thought it was purple. I like a whole lot of colors. I like maroon and blue and purple and... There are so many moments like this when the girls talk with their moms. Some of the girls do not want to disagree with their moms about anything, even when their mom gets their favorite color wrong. Other girls, it's hard to imagine how they're ever going to work it out with their moms. What's going on between them is like this thick web of cable that nobody is ever going to be able to untangle. Jessica is nine. She wears big silver headphones that are plugged into the camera. When her mom talks, Jessica hugs the big legal pad with her questions tightly to her chest. Okay, let's see. I don't remember what I asked first. Okay. It doesn't matter. Start from number one. Okay, don't be acting silly now. Let's not act retarded, okay? Okay, move your hair out of your eyes first, okay? What do you say when people ask you where your mom is? I don't know. Are you embarrassed that I'm in prison? Yes. Does it embarrass you? No, you ask me, are you mad at me? I'll ask you that in a minute. Jessica, come on, baby. Okay, just go. Put your legs together, thank you. Do you like coming here with the Girl Scouts to see me? Dull. Yeah, that's good. Have you learned any tricks on your new bike? Yeah, falling off. Yeah, that was a good one. Okay, um, let me see. Mom, I need to go to the restroom. Well, let us finish this I need up to go quick. very bad. Jessica, can't you just hold on just another minute? Okay, um, um, do you know how much I love you? To the stars and to the world and back. Yeah. Say it right. To the stars and to the world and back. Other moms seem like really good mothers, doing everything possible under the circumstances to be close to their girls. And you just kind of cross your fingers for them, and it's going to be enough. Kenya is a neatly put-together inmate in a white prison jumpsuit. She's in for possession with intent to distribute, and gives heartfelt answers when her 14-year-old, Caitlin, asks a series of astonishingly direct questions. When you get out of prison, will you still have a boyfriend who does drugs? Why'd you start selling drugs again after you'd already been in prison for it once before? I worked. You know I had a job, but it wasn't enough money. So I just, it was just a decision I made, which was the wrong decision. I wanted things, and I went about it the wrong way to get it. Okay. Were you uh, around drugs when you were little? Yes. With who? My mother. My mother um, always sold marijuana. And um, when I was 12, my mother started doing crack. 
I didn't even know Grandma did that. Well, she's been clean for about 16 years. And so my mom didn't go to prison, but she was gone from me all the time. And I know how it feels. You know, I, I felt like she didn't love me. I felt like she didn't care about me because she would just leave. And I don't want y'all to feel like that. How is it like living with Grandma? That, it's fun. I mean, besides the fun. Like, what do you mean? We know how she's dramatic and stuff. You know how she cries or she gets upset or she's really emotional. Yeah, and Alex does not help at all. That's grown-up stuff she's going through. Don't concern yourself with that because your job is to go to school, stay out of trouble, be a kid. And like you told me the other day that, well, Grandma's stressed out about money. Well, that's not your concern because you're not even old enough to get a job yet. You know what I mean? What could you do? I'm Nothing. almost there. Mm -mm. Uh -huh. Just be a kid. Of course, it's hard just being a kid when your mom is in prison. What can your mom really say to you that's going to help? She can't make you a nice meal and give you a nice place to live. She can't read to you at night or tuck you into bed. She can't be there to hear about your day. All she can do is hug you, show you that she loves you, give a little advice maybe, and just hope that's going to hold you and you'll be okay till the next visit. Well, today on our radio show, Parental Guidance Suggested, we have a bunch of stories where kids are not allowed to be kids, where they want somebody to look out for them and be the parent, and where parents get into impossible situations where it's hard to be a parent. Which, I gotta say, sometimes makes for really sad stories and sometimes makes for really, really funny stories. WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our show today in three acts. Act one, two possibilities, both of them bad. In that act, a kid and a parent face an impossible choice together. Act two, the grandma letters, a miserable teenager and his miserable grandma correspond. Act three, my angel's in the centerfolds. In that act, a 10-year-old girl starts her own business with a phone, a collection of index cards, and her dad's old Playboy magazines. Stay with us. Act one, two possibilities, both bad. What's amazing about this story is that the people in it make one reasonable choice after another. But they're living in such an unreasonable time and place that eventually they're forced into a position that no family should ever really be in at all. It all happened to Gene Cheek. And when the story begins, he's 10 years old, growing up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It's 1961. His parents split up long ago. He lives with his mom. And partly because it's just the two of them, they're really, really close. She spends a lot of time with him. And one day, he comes in from playing outside. And uh, Mama was on the phone crying. Um... Uh, and I thought something, you know, somebody had died or something was wrong. So I stood at her door for a minute. And uh, she eventually, after much uh, pressure from me, eventually told me uh, that that was her boyfriend on the phone or a man that she had been seeing is the way she put it. And I didn't even know, you know. All she did was work and come home. I didn't know when she had time to have a boyfriend. Tuck was his, uh, what everybody called him. His name was Cornelius Tucker. 
and my mom and uh, Tuck worked together. Hmm. And then we, we talked about it, and, and she told me, uh, I said, why are you crying? Uh, what did he do to make you cry? And she said, nothing. He thinks we should stop seeing each other for your sake. And, uh, and I said, well, why does he think uh, I will have a problem with him seeing you? And she said, because he's black. Was there any part of you at that point which, which, which flinched a little when she said that? You know, uh, you're a little kid, you're growing up in the South, probably didn't have much contact, you know, were close to any black people. I, I did flinch a little. You know, I, I, we didn't live too far from uh, the African-American community, a couple of streets over. So you would see them in your daily lives going through their neighborhoods or going through yours to get to theirs. But that was it, really. Jim Crow, uh, civil rights, was at its beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, blacks were being killed, lynched, uh, beaten. I was aware that uh, this was not going to be a very popular thing. And, and so how, how soon after that did you finally meet Tuck? A couple of days later. Um, he wanted to give me a birthday present, um, even though it wasn't my birthday. Um, so he drove by at night uh, and circled our block. I walked outside our apartment and walked around the corner. And he went by to make sure he wasn't being followed, circled back. And the second time around, he slowed down rolled down his window and said, catch, and threw out a football. And, and could you even see him, or was it just this, like, this mysterious voice and then a football? Yeah, it was, just, it, was at dark, it was night, and you know, I couldn't see him, really. You, know, you could see a figure inside the car. I assumed it was him. Mama told me what kind of car he would be driving. And, that, so. Is so, that is so secret agent. Was this pretty much the, oh. the coolest thing that had ever happened to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it was exactly that secret agent, man. Now this is 1961, so it's so it's I guess six years before the Supreme Court rules that that uh, that interracial marriage is legal nationwide. Um, was it legal for her to see him? And it was not legal. Well, it was illegal for them to be boyfriend girlfriend or any other kind of relationship, as far as that goes. Hmm. And so, would you start to see him? Like, w- were you in situations where it would be the three of you and you would hang out? Absolutely. Um, you know, Mom and I would leave our house um, after dark, and we would walk around the corner. Normally, we would cover our face as much as possible. Mama wore a scarf, and I had a coat that I would pull up the collar on and a baseball cap and that kind of thing. And again, Tuck would circle by and keep going to make sure he wasn't followed. And he would turn around and come back from the other direction, pull up to the curb, and we would jump in. And, and when you were in the car, would you have to duck down so people couldn't see you? Yeah. I would be scrunched down in the seat so that I wasn't as visible. Normally, we would pull up in his driveway and sit in the car for a minute or two just to make sure that we hadn't been followed. We would get out, and uh, he wouldn't. it would be dark, of course, and the porch light would not be on. And we would go into the house and do what normal people did, talk, talk. Uh, play games, Monopoly, uh, card games, watch TV, listen to the radio, listen to the stereo, Hmm. play marbles on his floor. He had a carpet, and he would take a piece of chalk and draw a circle on the carpet, and we would shoot marbles. Tuck was uh, an amazing human being, and, and he had a way of just immediately putting you at ease. After the first night that I met him and spent time at his house, 
it was easy for me to see how Mama had fallen in love with him. Hmm. He was just that kind of a man. And then would you stay over there and then go to school from there in the morning? No. No, we never spent the night. And Tuck had made it plain that we had to be very careful. I was oblivious. I was just caught up in the espionage of it all, you know, that I had a secret that nobody else knew and, you know. Oh, right. You couldn't even tell kids at school. Oh, heck no. God, no. Couldn't tell anybody. Couldn't tell my best friend. Couldn't tell anyone. And how far did it go? Like, like how often was was there something where, where there was trouble? Well, we got chased, and um, the the police would come by, and they would knock on the door or, or just open the door sometimes and just walk right in. And we would be sitting in the living room or, or you know, talking or sitting at the kitchen table playing games, and they would say, uh, you know, nigger, what are you doing with this white woman? And uh, he would say, well, we're just friends. We're just fisting. And, uh, you know, then they would say something to my mom. Well, don't you know better? What's your son doing here? And she said, well, what's wrong with my son being here? Well, you, you can't stay here. Don't you know it's illegal for you and that nigger to be sleeping together? But they would always um, say, well, you're, you guys are going to, you, you and your boy are going to have to leave and Tuck would say, okay, well, they were just leaving. I'll take them home. And they would say, oh, no, hell no, nigger. You're, we'll take them home. You're lucky we don't arrest you. So that's usually the way it went. And that happened how many times? It would happen once a month probably or once every six weeks. You know, once, uh, once it was known that Mama was seeing Tuck. Um, how did it get to be known? Well, my dad followed uh, my mom, my biological father, had followed my mom. Uh, Him and his brother followed my mom to uh, Tuck's house. You know, there was one time when the cops came, uh, and uh, as we walked outside the Tuck's house, I could see my dad and his brother parked down the street, so I knew who had brought the cops with them. Hmm. So your dad called the cops on your mom. Why? I don't, well, because he was full of hate, you know. Um, It was bad enough that his uh, wife had left him, uh, but she had, uh, was now seeing a black man. And that was, my dad was a stone cold racist. And uh, that was more than he could stand. Would he lecture you about it? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. What would he say? You know, oh, he would, you know say it was unnatural and it was against God's law and, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, He would use the analogy, you don't see a black bird and a red bird together, you know, and and I always wanted to say, well, yeah, those are different species there, Dad, not, uh, you know, just different colors. And so so Tuck and your mom, they, they also got fired from their jobs, right? They did. My little brother was born. That kind of changed things. It's a pretty difficult to hide that. They got fired from their jobs at the mill. My mom's family, my dad's family, our friends, everybody uh, disowned us, walked out of our lives, um, didn't have anything to do with us after Randy was born. Um, My aunt, her sister, came to visit her in the hospital. She had checked into the hospital under an assumed name. Uh, But Aunt Goldie went to see her, and and, uh, when she saw Randy, she said, Sally, this baby ain't white. And Mama said, "Uh, I know Goldie. 
but he's still my son. And uh, Aunt Goldie handed Randy back to Mama and walked out of our lives, and it was 30 years later before they ever spoke again. About eight months after Randy was born, we had gone to bed one night during the week, and I was uh, awakened at uh, two o'clock in the morning by sounds outside, and, and I could see through the curtain that there was something burning, and I didn't really know what it was. And uh, when I pulled back the curtain, I could see three Klansmen. Um, one of them had a shotgun and was shooting it into the air, which is what had woke me up. And they had put a cross on the yard and were sh shouting racial slurs, you know, death to nigger lovers and those kinds of things. And uh, Mama woke up. And when she came in, she said, uh, get away from the window. It's the Klan. And, of course, I knew what the Klan was. And I said, well, what are they doing here? And she said, they're here because of your brother. And I was just infuriated. Um uh, we spent the night sitting in the living room, um, and I had gone to the kitchen and got a butcher knife, and I'd taken a chair and set it facing the front door and sat there uh, thinking they were going to bust in at any minute. And we didn't have a phone, so we couldn't call anybody. If she could have called somebody, was there actually somebody who she could have called who could have come over? She could have called Tuck. Mm -hmm. The police wouldn't have, you know, the police probably would not have done anything at that time. Could she have called her family? I mean, wouldn't they have stepped in to, 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 to rescue you even if they were having this fight? No, not at this point. No. Her family had turned their backs on her, and uh, her family wouldn't have lifted a finger. Her family probably, probably sent the clan in the first place, if you want to know the truth about it. She had nobody. Why not just move north? Well, we had talked about it. Tuck asked me. Uh, he said that uh, we could move up north and, and be more like a family. He said, your mom and I could even get married. Uh, but you got to understand that, you know, we didn't have any money. Tuck didn't have any money. Uh, we, it was not like we could just gather up what we owned and off we went. Um, I know, but so many poor people move north. I mean, the whole city of Chicago is like you know, I, pe I know. people who had nothing, who had, you know, just picked up and moved. I know. And I, you know, the only thing I can look back on now and say is that things happen so fast. From the time Randy was born, things just spiraled out of control before they could get a handle yeah. on it. And we just, you know... You know, they didn't expect uh, things to turn out like they did, you know. Things turned out like they did because of what happened next. And what happened next is that his mom told him they had to go to court for child support. They'd been fighting with his father over child support payments for years, so Gene wasn't especially worried about those. Mom and I rode the bus downtown and, and uh, walked into the courtroom by ourselves. And we sat on the right side of the courtroom, and on the left side was my dad, his brother, my grandmother, mom's brother, Uncle Bill, our next-door neighbors, and on our side of the courtroom was me and mom. And when the judge walked in, he said, uh, 
in the matter of the custody of Jesse Eugene Cheek. And I knew immediately, you know, what that meant, that we were not here for child support. And Mom's lawyer didn't show up. He never did show up. Hmm. So it was all downhill after that. Mom, uh, she had told her sister the day before this uh, trial that there's no way they'll take Jean away from me. I'm a good mother. And she believed that. She was convinced that they would not take me away from her because she was a good mother. And I'm here to tell you that she was. There was nobody in that courtroom that day that could testify that she was not a good mother. And, And nobody did. What they did testify was that uh, she had a mixed-race baby by an African-American man and um, was therefore unfit. Now, one strange thing about this case is that your dad wasn't actually trying to get you back himself, right? No. Explain what your dad was arguing in court. Well, he was, uh, he, he was arguing that Mama was unfit, but uh, he told the judge that he himself was an alcoholic and an um, epileptic and could not raise me. Uh, his brother, my, my uncle, uh, testified that he could not provide me with a home either because he had his own family to raise. My uh, grandmother, my dad's mom, testified that she could not offer me a home either because her doctor had advised her that uh, having a teenage boy in the house would be bad for her health. And so they all testified that uh, Mama was unfit, but they couldn't take me for this or this reason or that reason. So It's just so crazy, the notion of a parent going in and saying, well, well, she's unfit, but I'm unfit yeah. too, so I can't take yeah. the kid. Like, I've never heard of a custody hearing that works like that. Well, that's exactly what he said. I mean, uh, that's honest to God exactly what he said. So my dad was a rare bird. And then when the judge asked your mom, is the father Tuck? Because I know it, as part of the, the court proceeding, he actually asked her flat out, is this guy the yeah. father of this baby? What did she say? No. She denied it. She said that the baby uh, or, or that the father was a truck driver who is now deceased. And that's all she said about the matter. And didn't they ask, like, well, who is this guy? What's his name? No. They didn't. They, you know, because they uh, just could see that this is a lie. Sure. Well, they knew she. They knew she was lying, but uh, you know, it was it was a felony for her to admit in a court of law that she had a baby by Cornelius Tucker. So, you know, she had to lie about it. I mean, she had to say no. It's not Cornelius Tucker's baby. The father's dead. I don't remember his name. It didn't take long for Gene and his mother to figure out that this hearing was not going very well for them. Gene's mom started crying. He started crying. Gene says he simply had no idea the world could work the way it was working in the courtroom that day. It was incomprehensible. It was shocking. I didn't believe it. Mama didn't believe it. We, you know, we believed right one out. When, when the judge made his ruling that he was, you know, it's the ruling of this court that your son be... Re- Actually, he gave my mom a choice. He said, give up... Um, this baby is the way he put it, I believe, or give up your son. Um, 
Let me just be sure. Like I'm totally understanding the logic. So the, the the logic of that is okay. What makes her an unfit mother is that she's got this mixed race baby. Right, and I'm around him. And you're around him, and, and you'll be exposed to this mixed-race baby. That's right. Yeah, it'll rub off on me, I guess, you know, whatever. And, and, and so basically, you, if you get the baby out of this picture, then she's suddenly a fit mother again by abandoning her baby. With the choice he gave her, that's exactly what he was saying, yeah. You know, somehow this will all be better if you just, if they're not around each other. It'll all be better. How does that make sense? Yeah, well, I don't know. It don't make sense. It wasn't meant to make sense. It was just more punishment as far as I was concerned. And so does the judge actually say to her, okay, here you are, just choose. Which kid are you going to give up? Not in those exact words, but his, his words were, Mrs. you know, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, it, Mrs. Cheek, you can give up your illegitimate son or we're going to take Gene away from you, one or the other. I just looked at Mama, and I leaned over, and I whispered and, and said, Mama, if they take Randy, we'll never see him again. Uh, he's just a baby. And I said, I know where home is. Let him take me. And before she could say anything, I just turned to the judge and said, take me. And so that was enough. He did. He said, oh, you know, he pounded the gavel and said, it's the ruling of this court that Jesse Eugene Cheek will be removed and placed in the custody of Forsyth County Child Services. And at that time, two policemen who had been standing in the back of the courtroom came down, and Mom and I were clinging to each other. I was holding on to her, and she was holding on to me, and she was screaming, don't do this, don't do this. And I was cussing, you know, screaming at my dad, I'll kill you for this. And so the cops took me by the arms, and literally pulled me away, tore me away from my mom, and just drug me out of the courtroom, put me in a police car, drove me to a detention center that was a couple of blocks from the courthouse for juvenile delinquents. Uh, a lady got up from behind a desk, went to the end of the hall, and unlocked a door. The two policemen pushed me into the room. The door was pulled shut behind me and locked, and I spent three days in that room. They, would, they fed me by slipping trays of food under the door. Those three days, two and a half days that I spent locked in that room, I, you know, all I did was cry and sleep, uh, really. I was devastated. My life had ended as I knew it. When I came out of that room, I was an angry kid, and I stayed angry until, uh, you know, a few years ago, to be honest with you. Gene was sent to a foster home on the other side of town. But he was like a different kid. He was not the well-behaved boy that he'd been. He was in the crazy position that he had done the right thing. He had volunteered to leave his own family for the sake of everybody. It was better for his baby brother. It was better for his mom. The main person it wasn't better for was him. And though he knew he did the right thing, he had other feelings about it, too. Somewhere along the line, that little 12-year-old boy that got taken away from his mama expected, as all 12-year-old boys do, that his mama would make things all right. And, you know, I, I was mad at her because she didn't make things all better. But Right, that she didn't sweep in right. and move you all north. Right. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that all, everything was just all, you know, all better all of a sudden. 
And I guess for the first two or three months in that foster home, I held on to the possibility that things would be all right. But you lose, you lose hope of that pretty quick. Yeah. And uh, I did. Yeah, I was a terrible foster kid. I beat beat the heck out of her own son the first day I was there because he, you know, he I, he was standing on the back porch. I had just come back from a walk, and he said, uh, "Oh, you're the one with the nigger loving mama." And it was the wrong time uh, for him to say that. So I was, you know, it was, yeah, I was pretty. I was a pretty bad kid. I would skip school and go see my mom and ride the bus, hitchhike, walk across town, ride a bike. Uh, I would go see her anytime I wanted to. It's a funny kind of juvenile delinquent who's evading his social worker and his foster parents, and nobody knows where he is. And where he is, the bad thing that he's doing is going to visit his mom. Eventually, Gene got in so much trouble for this that he was sent away to a facility called Boys Home, 200 miles from Winston-Salem. He could come home 20 days a year. That was it. But at Boys Home, he finally got a more or less normal life. He made decent grades, got a girlfriend. I played sports. I was popular on campus, and, you know, I fit in. My anger subsided some, mostly because of sports and those kinds of things. And uh, Boys Home was probably the best thing that happened to me. Because at, at this point in time, you're 200 miles away. And you know that you can't just walk across town and see your mom. So you, you resolve yourself to this fact. I'm not going home again. You know, the first time that you heard about Tuck, Tuck was saying to your mom, maybe the two of them should split up for your sake. Yeah. yeah. Do you think he might have been right? Well, um, in hindsight... Absolutely. And, um, you know, in hindsight, yeah, they probably should have, you know. But I can tell you one thing. I wouldn't change one minute of my life. I have two wonderful brothers. You know, had that happened, I wouldn't have known Tuck. So, you know, I'm I'm glad yeah. they didn't end it, you know, to be honest with you. I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy. I wouldn't have it any other way. Randy's grown up by now. Does, has he ever talked to you about the choice that you made then? Yeah, yeah, we've talked about it. He, uh, Randy grew up uh, thinking I was, uh, you know, one of the knights of uh, King Arthur's court. Oh, because his parents had told him. Absolutely. His, his, you know, my mom and, and Tuck would tell him. Um, so he worshipped, you know. I mean, he we, like any little brother would. Um, he worshipped me, but even more so because in his mind I had, you know, uh, made this sacrifice for him. Well, not even in and, his mind. You did make the sacrifice for him. Well, he got I, to stay I, with his parents because of you. I know. I know. Years later, um, you must have talked to your mom about that decision, about how how Tuck, you know, raised very early the thought, like, well, maybe we should split up because look at all the bad things that can happen. And, and, and did she have regrets about the choices that she made or mixed feelings about the choices she made? Oh, definitely. You know, there's no question about it. 
she came to my graduation at Boys Home, and I had been there five years by this time. And it was the first time that she had ever been to Boys Home. She rode the bus down, and, and uh, I picked her up at the bus station in one of Boys Home's car. And we were going by campus, and uh, I said, Mom, you want me to show you around, you know? And she started crying, and she said, um, no, I can't do that, honey. And I said, oh, it's okay. You know, I understand. It was like we were living, you know, separate lives, and, you know, I was growing up without her. And so she continued to cry, and I parked the car and stopped, and she just looked at me. And uh, by this time, we were both crying. And she just looked at me, and she said, I'm so sorry. Sorry that you had to be there at all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry that things had happened the way they had. Well, I just looked at her and I told her, you know, I said, sorry for what, Mama? You know, for loving me, for loving Randy, for loving Tuck. You know, what do you have to be sorry for? And i that's when I told her that I had just spent five years with boys 104 boys who knew for a fact that no one in the world gave a hoot in hell about them. The difference between me and them was that in my lifetime I had been loved. There was never a moment, never a moment in my life when I did not know for a fact that I was loved. And I said, I said you don't have anything to be sorry for and you, you don't have to tell me you're sorry. You never have to say that to me. So, but, you know, there's no question it shortened her life and that it was, uh, you know, something she carried with her guilt. She carried with her every day of her life. You know, and Tuck, too. Um, she used to ask my ex-wife, uh, you know, how I felt about it and, you know, did I blame her? And even though we were close and very close, it's just... You know, that's a guilt you just can't, that's just something that can't be removed from a mother. And she was a loving mother, so it would have, it was devastating for her. Gene Cheek. He's written a book about his family's story called The Color of Love, A Mother's Choice in the Jim Crow South. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1967 that state laws that prevented interracial marriage were unconstitutional. But North Carolina only got around to following the Supreme Court's orders on this matter in 1974. It was after that, finally, that Jean's mom was able to marry Tuck. They had another son, lived out their days together. Tuck died in 1982. Jean's mom died in 1995. Coming up, grandmas rush in where wise men never go. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, parental guidance suggested, stories of kids who need parents to step in and fix things, and what those kids end up doing when the parents fail to act. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, The Grandma Letters. In this act, as in our first act, a boy finds himself far from the home he knows and the world he knows. But in this case, the adults in his life seem to stop guiding him effectively, even once he gets to high school. And so instead, he turns to the postal system. Will Seymour told the story on stage as part of the Mortified Stage Show, where people read from embarrassing old diaries and letters. In 1981, I was fine. Um, I had pets, and my parents were married, and my grandparents lived, lived next door. All was well. And then my parents divorced. And uh, I, I had to give up my pets, and uh, I had to move. Uh, we moved to far away. And so my best friend, of course, was my grandmother. And um, she lived, you know, far, far away. And back in the 80s, there was a long-distance phone, you know, very expensive. And um, so I, uh, I had no one. I started a new school, and I had no friends except my grandmother. So I wrote my grandmother letters, a lot of letters. And I'm not going to read all of them, but she and she wrote me back. You know, she was probably pretty worried about us, and um, I shared nothing but terrible information. <laughs> and then, um, just so you know, she was like kind of dying of emphysema, so she had really terrible information too. Um, she actually, uh, you know, wrote me back and treated me like an adult, and we actually became really good friends. So here's a couple of our um, our little exchanges. Uh, this is like a 1981 freshman in high school. Dear Grandma, I hate it here. I'm faking sick today and I'm staying home, just like yesterday. <laughs> I'm so afraid of school. Hopefully I can change my schedule out of PE and maybe like a library aid or something. I lost more weight. I just don't get hungry. I get worried when I, I lose my hunger, and when I worry, I don't get hungry. <laughs> Grandma, don't feel bad if you're too sick to write back. Feel terrible. Just kidding. Well, it was wonderful talking to you. I love you, and I miss you. Bill Seymour, your grandson. Bill, dear, I guess our wonderful chats on the phone are a thing of the past since neither of us can afford them. Well, we can still write. We miss all of you, something fierce. I'm sorry my writing is terrible. I've become so messy, but it's not me. I'm back on triple strength antibiotics. My medication speeds up my metabolism and causes these trembly hands. Well, enough of this shit. Here's a joke. Do you know what they call 10 rabbits walking backwards? A receding hairline. Ask your mother to explain it. 
Well, honey, I guess I'll close for this one. Keep the letters coming. They really help, Bill. Love, Grandma. Hello, Grandma. School's not great. It's, it's just okay. I'm kind of worried about algebra and French. Actually, my grades are okay, considering I don't go to school for very much. I'm writing you right now from class. Love, Bill Seymour, your grandson. P.S. I put my last name just in case you forgot. What the hell? Hi, Grandma. It's Special Thursday. Want to know why? Today I went to school and I found out I'm behind in my French class. Just kidding. It's no big. But seriously, I'm failing my French class. How are you? I'm okay. Not great. I didn't take the bus today. I cut my last class and I walked home instead. They were throwing pee balloons because the water was shut off at school. It was a long walk, but at least I don't have pee on me. Love, Bill, your bored grandson. Bill, dear, I'm getting a mask. It sterilizes the air that I breathe in, but I hope they come in colors. I'd like to get one that matches my eyes, but Gramps says they don't come in bloodshot <laughs> Brindle Brown. <laughs> Bill, <laughs> you said you were bored. I'll show you bored. Things are so bad here, I squeezed the Charmin twice this morning just for the hell of it. I know I shouldn't say hell, but who cares? I'm pretty sure God understands. Write soon and keep smiling. All our love, Grandma and Grandpa. Hello, Grandma. How are you? Hello, Graham. Yesterday and today were snow days. No school. I'm fine with that. Too many people said they were going to beat me up this week. I miss you both. Update. I'm now going to give you my opinion of mom's current boyfriend, soon-to-be husband, Phil. Well, he's super. Super terrible, super spectacularly fake, and full of super creepy personality. Now for a few jokes. Have you heard the joke about the two girls playing jump rope? Oh, just skip it. Ha, 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 ha. Love, Bill. Dear Bill, so nice to get your long letter, honey. Still flat on my back, so writing is really difficult. <laughs> I'm going to try to use my walker today. Perhaps I'll be strong enough. How is school going? I imagine it's not the happy place it should be, but honey, hang tough. Keep at it. Time will pass quickly. And as for your impression of Phil, your mom has never really mentioned him in detail. Or, for that matter, de-head or de-mind either. <laughs> your jokes are funny. Have you heard of these? What would you give a pig with a sore throat? Oinkment. <laughs> what lies on the ocean floor and twitches? A nervous wreck. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> well, love coughing. No time for me. I've got to get on my breathing machine. I never coughed so good when I was smoking. We love you, Grandma. Dear Grandma, this fun kit has been made especially by me to get you well. And it's basically a, 
I made about seven of them, and they're about 14 pages long, each of them, and this particular one had a quiz in it. <laughs> hey, you, you think you're smart? You think you got the know-how in the noggin? Okay, just to be perfectly sure, take today's quiz to find out how smart you really are. Number one, Babe Ruth was famous for hitting A, the bottle, B, his mother-in-law, or C, small children with the baseball bat. Number two, Typhoid Mary was infamous for spreading A, rumors, B, dirty mouse breath, or C, a feverishly hot stew. Number three, Beethoven played A, the field, B, shuffleboard, or C, because he was an artist, damn it. He was an artist. <laughs> and then the last letter, Bill, dear. It always gives me such a warm feeling to write those words. We've always had such a special relationship, haven't we? You're not only a loving grandson, you've been a friend, and that's a real treasure. I've needed to tell you of my love for you so you'll be able to wear it like a warm jacket for as long as you want, something that no one or nothing can take away from you. You've always made me happy. I love you, Grandma. Over. P.S. When I hear this song, I think of you. It's the theme of the TV show Love, Sydney with Tony Randall. <laughs> Please believe me, lately my whole world is changing. Suddenly you're here and life is better than before. We're like friends forever. And when the rest are gone, it's you who will be there for me, my friend. You. Thanks. Will Seymour lives in Los Angeles where he is still avoiding French class. He read at the Mortified Stage Show. You can find them on the web at getmortified.com. in the centerfold. It's a story that my mom used to tell about um, when my sisters and I were good old. The Goloskoff's cat next door to us had kittens. My sister Randy was six or seven at the time, and she asked my mom, okay, so how exactly did that happen? Like, what happened to make the cat pregnant? And my mom, she just felt like, oh, this is really great. She's asking me these questions. We can get this out of the way. She's so young, you know. And so she tells Randy the whole story and reproduction and the mommy and the daddy cat, the whole thing. Okay, so she gets to the end of this whole story. My mom is feeling great. And she turns to Randy and she says, do you have any questions, Randy? And Randy thinks for a second and she says, can birds really fly? I think the moral of the story is you can throw certain information at kids, but they are only going to absorb what they are able to absorb. And they're going to ignore everything else. And I bring this up here because our next story is very much an example of that phenomenon. Wanting to listen to there's nothing explicit or graphic in this story, but it does acknowledge the existence of sex. Thea Challoner tells the tale. My friend Emily had a rough time growing up with her dad. Part of the problem was his job. He taught human sexuality at Boston University, which is pretty impressive. But to a kid, it's your worst nightmare. Your dad's a sex professor. By the time she was 10, he was a local celebrity. 
famous for his knowledge about sex. He had a radio show on WHDH in Boston called Talking Sex with Dr. Joseph Helfgott. And it was a call-in show. <laughs> and it was a maverick show of its time um, because he would talk frankly about sex. And most of the people who called in were women talking about how, I mean, I can clearly remember, I can hear a woman's voice calling in and asking if he could explain to her how she could achieve multiple orgasm. So Rebecca Ritter's house, fifth grade, in my Care Bear nightgown, in my strawberry shortcake sleeping bag, I swear to God, as like girly as it gets. And then we were in our sleeping bags about to go to sleep, and Rebecca sits up and says, oh, let's listen to Em's dad's show. So they turn the radio on, and we'd be like in the dark, listening to my father on the radio going like, because he also smoked. Doris, I'm really glad you called in. Um, you know, women so often think that it's something that's going on with them, and it's the reason why they can't achieve multiple orgasms. And he was very flirtatious with the people on the air, too. And I, I knew that. I could sense the tenor of the flirtation, even when I was a little kid. And I was trying to pass it off and be giggly and like, oh, it's so funny, like every, all my friends were. But I was, like, you know, putting my nails into my thigh to get myself not to cry. And I also just felt, why couldn't my dad be normal? Emily's parents divorced when she was five, and she and her brother spent every other weekend at her dad's house. He enforced a lot of family time, which usually meant watching TV. Then he'd fall asleep, and the kids were left to amuse themselves. Her brother occupied himself with Archie Comics and G.I. Joes, but Emily was on her own. It was weird being there. And boring until she discovered the bookshelves. It was all books on the top three bookshelves, and then the bottom bookshelf was all Playboys. I mean, it was like a 64 Crayola box of Playboys. And my first mission, because I was always a very kind of organizationally oriented kid, was to chronologically organize them. So I had them going, you know, October. 81 or whatever it was all the way through to whatever the current one was somehow and I wish I could I could tell you how I figured this out I decided that I would use the magazines and kind of use the centerfolds and the questionnaires that they would answer as a portfolio for women who I would use in my dating service the tools for her imaginary dating service were a Smith Corona typewriter, a phone unplugged from the wall, a box of index cards, a yellow pages, and of course, a huge collection of Playboys. Take me through a couple of, you know, sort of sample scenarios of what of what this would be. Can you do that? I can, but I should as a disclaimer first say that I would say my lines out loud, but I wouldn't say the lines of the quote unquote person on the other line of the phone. Bring, bring. <laughs> Miss Lana's dating service, how can I help you? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you're looking for someone who's like 5'10 and weighs like 125 pounds. Um, can you hold on for just a minute, sir? And then I would press, I actually don't believe there was a hold button, but in my imagination there was, and I would put the phone down, and I would go to my resource library of Playboy magazines, and I would go until I found someone that was around the range that 
I had just made up <laughs> for myself. So it really is very <laughs> twisted. And then I would open up to the centerfold and not really extend the whole picture of the centerfold, but really just looking at the questionnaire. Once I had that in front of me, I'd get back on the phone. Hi, Mr. Watkins. Yes, I think I have the perfect girl for you. Her name is Amber Rose. She's, you know, 5'9", 125 pounds, and she... What? Yes, no, she does. She likes oysters, and um, she likes long walks on the beach at night, and oh, she loves shooting stars. Does it sound good? Okay, Mr. Watkins, let me just get your information. And then I would put a index card in the typewriter and roll it in. It was one of those, you know, old manual kind. And I would say, so it's Ron Watkins. And it would take me hunting and pecking on the typewriter, like Ron Watkins, spell it out, return, next line. And then I would type in the name of the centerfold. And I may t- I've typed in like the, the magazine she was from, like the month and the year, so I'd have it for reference later. And then I would like chat sometimes with him on the phone, you know, like, so Mr. Watkins, how long have you been living in Washington? Uh-huh. Oh, you got a recommendation from, oh yeah, Bill comes to me all the time. I was a facilitator of the woman and the man getting together. I wasn't playing out any kind of fantasy for myself. I was a businesswoman. Except for the fact that the women are like totally naked, you know, in very sexual uh, positions all throughout these magazines. So like, did that factor in or into your brain? No, that's why I say that I really, I mean, I would look at the actual pictures um, really just so I could get a sense. Because, you know, sometimes they were like cowgirl. Like, she'd have no clothes on except for, like, then she'd have a bullwhip in her hand and little spurs on her ankles, and she'd be lying on a bed of hay, you know, or something. So I would factor that into my conversation with the guy. You know, I'd be like, and she loves to rodeo, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so then I took it to this other level where, this is where the yellow pages comes in, where I would say, so, Ron... Um, what kind of cuisine do you like? And I would find a place and then I would type up on the index card the name of the restaurant, the time the reservation was going to be, and I filed the card away, I'm sure alphabetically, by the guy's last name in the little plastic case. And then it was like time for the next call. I could not have been more content. I always wanted to be a travel agent as a kid, you know, the like clicking clicking of the nails on the keyboard and the simultaneously talking to and this was before I think they even had headset phones but the simultaneous <laughs> like talking to the person I think I have a good deal for you but and then like referencing things in books like just the all the using all those tools and I the resources available to me were Playboy magazines it was also just a coping mechanism for being in an environment that I hated you know I just I didn't like being there for so many reasons, and it was an escape. For Emily, the long-term effects of looking at so many playboys at such a young age weren't as damaging as you'd expect. When she was 10, she believed that she could choose the centerfold body she liked the best, and then she'd, you know, grow into it later on, like that was an option. What was damaging was that her dad just didn't seem to get that she was still a kid, and that certain things are better left unsaid. Or in the case of the Playboys, 
Certain things are better left stashed away on that top shelf of the closet. A 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old girl is not impressed by her father's call-in radio sex show. She's not impressed by, you know, the fact that he can talk so openly about sex because as far as she's concerned, that conversation doesn't exist between the father and the daughter. I think what you have to understand is that, like, to cope, right, as a kid, you read a situation when you walk into it and you you conform to the situation and being able to enter into this, especially from the world at my mother's house that was like, everything was in its right place and we got tucked in and I got my back rubbed in a very certain way and the door left open just three inches and then good night, sweet dreams, I love you with the glass of water and then, and it's like, we're going to dad's, you know, it's like different routine. I can fight it and be miserable or I can kind of make a game up with the Playboys until we get back to my mom's house. You know? well, it's like, I can fight it or I can alphabetize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Emily lost her virginity when she was 17. She told both parents. Her mom's first response was sweet. Do you love him? Were you safe? Her dad's. Was it good? Did you orgasm? And yes, at the time, her dad's question completely freaked her out. But now she thinks his intentions were the same as her mom's. His heart was in the right place. He just didn't understand how to talk to his daughter. It's the oldest dad problem in the world. Bea Challoner, she was, until last week, our intern here at This American Life. She's moving back to Los Angeles to become a producer at public radio station KCRW. If I don't take to the highway I'm gonna lose my head Can't do things your way Gotta live my way And the grass is green around the wrong side of the bed Grass is always greener inside my head Our program is produced today by Jane Feltis and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Elizabeth Meister, runs our website. Production help from Seth Lind and Sativa January. Special thanks today to Jordana Gustafson. You know you can download today's program in our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is made possible by Volkswagen of America and the Volkswagen Jetta. Reminding listeners that safe can happen anywhere, anytime. Volkswagen Jetta, safe happens. And by Pals.com, the web's source for new and used books, staff recommendations, and uncensored reviews. And, of course, books on the web at Pals.com. WB Easy Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who said to me just the other day, When I hear this song, I think of you. It's the theme of the TV show Love, Sydney with Tony Randall. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.